G'day, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome back to Series 5 of This Week in Startups Australia. We don't spend nearly enough time visiting with the folks up in Queensland, so on this special episode, we'll be exploring the Queensland startup ecosystem from the perspective both of an investor and from one of Brisbane's hottest startups. We begin with One Venture's partner, Anne-Marie Burkle, who will take us through what it takes to grow into one of Australia's largest funds. Then we'll explore the outer edges of machine learning with the co-founders of Maxwell MRI. And what they have to share with us will blow your mind. Heading north and going deep on This Week in Startups Australia's Queensland Special. This Week in Startups Australia is proudly sponsored by Creative3, Australia's largest conference for creative tech entrepreneurs and startups. Twista is also sponsored by Spaceship, where you can invest your super in the tech companies you know and love. Find out more at spaceship.com.au. It's no secret that Queensland has become the hottest place in Australia to do a startup. The government there has been piling hundreds of millions of dollars into the startup community and it shows. But governments come and go, political winds change, the dollars do evaporate. What makes a startup community sustainable is the right mix of investors and founders. The biggest investment firm in Queensland, with it must be admitted offices also in Sydney, is One Ventures. They've grown from a modest $40 million fund into three funds with a combined investment of over $300 million. That puts them just behind Blackbird Ventures in size and reach. The story of One Ventures is the story of Queensland's startup community coming up to speed. And to take us on that journey is One Ventures' managing partner, Anne-Marie Burkle. Anne-Marie, welcome to This Week in Startups Australia. Thanks, Mark. I'm so excited to be here today. Okay, so take us on the journey. Where did One Ventures start? And I don't mean where in terms of place, but where in terms of time and story. So I think the One Ventures story started in 2010 when we raised our first $40 million fund with $20 million from the Federal Government Innovation Investment Fund scheme and $20 million from high net worth investors and family offices. Um, we were a very small firm at that stage, mm. just three partners and a part-time admin, and the firm's really grown from that starting point. Okay. So where were you focusing, in, both in terms of which state you were doing your investments in and what, what sectors you were doing your investments in? So One Venture's always been headquartered in Sydney, okay. but we've had a Brisbane office. I'm the Brisbane office. Mm -hmm. um, and really, we're a, a general technology investor, but we invest in, in companies that have got... Um, deep technology solutions to large and growing global problems. So all, almost everybody on the team um, has got some sort of scientific or technical background. So we're really interested in those sorts of um, solutions to problems that are large and growing, um, that have got unique, patent, uh, protectable intellectual property positions. Okay, so how long did it take you then to get, to basically place your first $40 million? The first $40 million was placed within um, four years of launch. So we're really now, we're, it's a 10-year um, lifespan fund. Mm -hmm. So now seven and a half years later, we're starting to move those assets into exit processes. Okay. Which is the normal life cycle for a fund. You do a 10-year fund, you grow the fund, and you start to move it toward exits. Now, when did you decide that you wanted to do a second and then a third fund as a result of that? 
The second fund was launched in 2014, mm -hmm. so about four years later. I suppose when we started um, coming to the end of the investment cycle for Fund 1, it was right. time to, to sort of top up the coffers, if you like, um, to be able to fund the next batch of, of high prospect companies. The third fund that we launched earlier this year was really a bit serendipitous around the launch of the federal government biomedical translation fund. So we decided at that time that we were going to go out and bid for part of that capital, matching it with $85 million from our our high net worth investor base. So what's the biomedical translation fund that you're talking about? So this is um, a federal government program to put $500 million into the community with three fund managers mm -hmm. who raise matching capital. So we were one of three successful recipients for that funding. And our third fund, the $170 million Fund 3, is focused on investing in healthcare assets that are near or close to the clinic, um, diagnostics, therapeutics and medical devices. Okay. All right. So this is so, so. This is really going to give you now. Have you had a strong sort of biomedical focus throughout your time as a fund? We have made investments in that sector, mm. but as I say, we're not. We're, none of the first two funds, or neither of the first two funds, were specific in terms of any sort of technology area. So mm. we've invested everywhere from virtual re reality uh, through to enterprise software in areas like human resource management and cancer care to mobile and certainly yes there have been some biomedical investments as well right and to tie that in for listeners one of the investments that you made earlier this year was in a company called 8i and we had link gaskin at that time the ceo of 8i on this show last year when we visited with him so you have a whole bunch of different i guess assets in play what are this, I guess, the secrets for you as an investor and someone sends you their pitch deck or their prospectus or whatever? What are you looking for? How do you grade a potential investment and how does it get from a potential investment to a placement? Sure. So, look, I think one of the things that we're looking for, of course, is really great solutions to problems. So, a solution that's got that's defensible from an intellectual property point of view that nobody else is um, delivering into the market. We're also looking for really great people that we can work with. I mean, venture capital at its heart is a vent is a people business. Right. Um, the people in our team is what makes One Ventures great, and we're looking for great people to work with that can help us take those companies, if you like, from you know mere promise to global leaders in their sector. How do you assess a team when you see them? What, what do you look for when you look at a team? Well, look, capability is part of it mm. and, you know, that's a relatively easy thing to assess. I think the more important thing is chemistry. Mm. So we're looking at, you know, how, how do we each relate to the other? Um, are we looking uh, to build on each other's strengths and and challenge each other's weaknesses? Are we going to work together well as a team? Um, are we going to actually be able to, uh, in the end, is the sum of the whole going to be worth more than that of the individual parts? So it's a long process of courtship, if you like, mm -hmm. getting to know each other um, and building that relationship prior to investment. All right. So now that uh, One Ventures is very well established, has a lot of fund in the market in Australia, how do you see it? And, and I mean, I think at the same time you've seen One Ventures grow into the size at the same time the startup area in Australia has grown alongside it. How do you see the arc that startup culture and startup investing is on in Australia now in 2017? Well, I think the first thing I'll say is that 
um, for our second and third funds, we're not investing in startups. So mm. we are investing in growth stage companies. So it's important to make that point for the for the for the listeners. Um, but I think it, it's it's really exciting to see the not just the number of startups and well new ventures that are in the market these days, but the sophistication of the people and the solutions mm. that are being developed. So for our uh, ecosystem, it's really exciting to see that maturity. And, you know, it's not just, as I say, it's not just volume, it's quality. Right. And that's, that's, that's what's really exciting, I think. And is that because there's a lot more capacity around people are learning from each other? Or is it because, in fact, people have been around long enough that they're actually starting to learn from their own mistakes? I think it's all of that. But I also think that there's great resources available. Mm -hmm. I mean... The accelerators and incubators are no longer just places that you go to to kind of sit through a couple of days' worth of um, uh, lectures and seminars. They're, they're true deep, deep learning resources um, led by people that have been there and done it before that take advantage of all the various sort of mentors and business coaches that are out there in the ecosystem to help really drive businesses forward. And this capability is being transferred into our emerging companies um, to their benefit. And this, I think, this is the perfect place where we can start to pivot into talking about what is going on in Queensland. So for our listeners, I went to River City Labs last week to interview Maxwell MRI, and you'll be hearing that interview after we finish up with Anne-Marie. And I was blown away because two years ago, I walked into River City Labs. It was essentially a crappy little room, not a large room, but a crappy room. Uh, and everyone was in the room together, and it was all very, very startup-y, but just very, very modest. And I walk into River City Labs last week, and it's two very schmick, brand-new floors of a building with this beautiful inset stadium in the middle and classrooms everywhere, and there's something going on in every classroom and people. It was like night and day. What has happened Look, I think it, you're right, it's a phenomenal change. And I remember back when I was running iLab Incubator, it was the only incubator in town. Right. Now you look at what's been accomplished with, with the ecosystem, the, num the sheer number of incubators that and, and um, shared working spaces that exist, it's just incredible. But I think, look, what's happened is a lot of uh, very energetic people have really driven this change right. and obviously Steve Baxter is <laughs> as the founder of River City Labs is one of those people yes. but you also have to point to people like Mark Sowerby in the office of the chief entrepreneur just tremendous energy um, and enthusiasm for building a sector and it would be remiss of me not to also mention um, Minister Leanne Enoch um, who has the long-winded title Minister for Innovation, Science and the Digital Economy and the Minister for Small Business. But okay. we all just call her Minister for Startups. Minister for Startups. Um, and she's got a lot of money to spend, right? She has. So I, I guess, you know, the first initiative to point to, the, the $420 million Advanced Queensland initiative is probably the primary of those, which has funding for regions, accelerators, ideas, events, activities... Um, solving Queensland government challenges and, and women in STEM, mm -hmm. to name but a few. And, mm. 
Um, this includes uh, partially funding the Office of the Chief Entrepreneur um, and programs like the $40 million um, Business Development Fund, which is co-investing alongside venture capital and angel investors in great Queensland-based businesses. Right. So this is, I mean, $420 million. Uh, yes, it's being spread in many different directions, but that's a very, very serious commitment. We haven't seen any other state or federal government step up like that before, have we? I can't say definitively either way, Mark, but <laughs> look, it certainly is. It's a, it's a lot of money, but I think it's backed up by Leanne Enoch's sheer enthusiasm right. and commitment to this sector because it's as much about money as about what you say and do. Um, and, you know, she realises this is the future of Queensland um, to develop, you know, great innovative businesses that supplement the sort of traditional sources of um, of of economic return in our in our state and enthusiastically backs that vision with not just money but her actions and her words. And it's interesting because the former Premier, Campbell Newman, was in this studio sitting in that chair right there because the startup that he chairs, which is a Swarm Robotics, again, Queensland startup doing ag tech. And so even the former Premier has in some sense been swept into this and taken up by this. So... Is Queensland at an interesting, it felt like it had been past a tipping point where it's actually now just accelerating into a growing startup culture? I think you're right. And there's a couple of things that I've been involved in recently that are really good illustrations of that. So we had this unique kind of format where we had an investor pitch night a couple of weeks ago, right. organised by the Office of the Chief Entrepreneur. We had 1,200 people turn up to see nine investors pitch to entrepreneurs. Wow. Just a phenomenal turnout. I actually looked out into the audience, was blown away to see how many people there were there. Um, so that's just a fantastic sort of example of how the ecosystem has matured. And who were these people in the audience? Were these potential investors? Were they potential entrepreneurs? I mean, who are, are all of the above or...? Well, the, the initiative was pitched at entrepreneurs, so right. there was a lot of entrepreneurs in the in the audience and a lot of people that facilitate interactions between investors and entrepreneurs. So, you know, people that run our co-working spaces and our incubator and accelerator programs um, and generally help to, to bring together uh, investment and entrepreneurs. So, but 1,200 people, that's, that's a lot of people. All right. So we were, I, I, Queensland is really riding a high now and at some point that, that may change. There might be a change in government. There might be a change in spending priorities. Is the startup ecosystem in Queensland resilient enough to tolerate those winds of change, which, you know, as we know, politically, things will change. They will. And look, I hope the answer is yes. I think there's such a, a, a groundswell of enthusiasm, but more importantly, there are a lot of strong personalities that are well-resourced that are trying to ensure that this is a continuous process of, mm. of, of growth and development. And so what do we need to do confidence. to make sure that, that's a, that it stays a continuous process? What, what, thing, what, what KPIs do we need to be able to know that we're doing this right and that it will be resilient across a change in government or a change in funding priority? Well, I think it's hard to be specific about KPIs, but I think... First of all, showcasing success. Mm -hmm. We need to continue to talk about these companies that are really starting to take off. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned Maxwell MRI a moment ago. Um, there are many, many companies in the Queensland eco ecosystem that are poised for that next sort of stage of success. So to keep telling those stories is really important and engaging media so that that story gets out to the general population is really important as well. 
as many of these initiatives as we can make self-sustaining, I think will ensure that we continue to be a resilient ecosystem. Um, but, you know, we will continue to need support from both sides of government mm-hmm. um, and cultivating that bipartisan support, I think, is a, an important um challenge for the ecosystem. Okay, so two years ago, River City Labs was in that room and startups were just sort of mm. like this quiet thing in Queensland. Now we're here we are today. Two years from now, so October 2019, let's say I go on a visit to, to Queensland, to Brisbane, what will I find? I think you'll find that a lot of those companies that sit within River City Labs now have moved out mm-hmm. into their own premises, mm-hmm. are employing people and flourishing. And I'd like to also think that, you know, there's there's been some return of capital to investors because you need that success uh, to ensure that the ecosystem remains lubricated by capital. Yeah. Uh, I think the precinct will be bursting at the seams. So this, and this is Fortitude Valley, yes. which is kind of now turning into a mini Silicon Valley. Yeah, yeah. So so just, just for, for clarity, the, the precinct is a, a, a building, a two-storey building within right. which River City Lab sits. One Ventures also has an office there. Maxwell um, MRI has its office there. Maxwell so. MRI has its office there uh, and a number of startup companies right. and other initiatives as well. And I think, you know, when it opened, it felt a bit like a ghost town. We fast forward six weeks later and, you know, you almost can't move. It's like a beehive sort of activity. now. Yes. So I think we'll see, you know, more uh, co-working spaces like uh, the precinct building up and and success, I hope. Anne-Marie Burkle, thank you very much for being on this episode of This Week in Startups Australia. You're welcome. Thank you. Hi, this is Mark Pesci. I'd like to take a minute to tell you about Twister's sponsors, Creative3, Australia's largest conference for creative tech entrepreneurs and startups. On September 22nd, Creative3 brings together entrepreneurs, innovators, and investors for a one-day forum covering areas like virtual reality, animation, games, fashion, film, and entertainment. This year, Creative3 will feature Margaret Wallace, CEO of Playmatics, Tim Roos of Zero Latency, you heard him on our last episode, Annie Parker of Code Club Australia, SOSV's William Baubeam, plus many more talented folks sharing the secrets of their creative successes. Creative3 has sold out seven years in a row, so don't miss out. Buy your ticket at creative3.com.au and we'll see you there. And we will see you there because I'm the MC. Creative3. It's where you need to be. Matt Brown, Elliot Smith, welcome to This Week in Startups Australia. Hi. Okay, so just start off by telling us what Maxwell MRI does. Okay, well, uh, Maxwell MRI is a company that uses artificial intelligence to essentially take control of your health. So we want to be the place that gathers all the health information there is on you, uses artificial intelligence to understand where you are right now, how healthy you are, and predict things that might happen to you in the future so that we can guide you to the right specialist clinician to ensure that those horrible things never come to pass. So, for example, my 79-year-old uncle just had a triple bypass two weeks ago. He's doing super mm-hmm. well now. And when I was... Talking to him beforehand, it's like, how long has this been developing? He said, oh, 30 or 40 years. This is the kind of thing that might help me. Now, how is this going to help me either prevent or get to a clinician? How is what you're doing going to do that? 
Yeah, so in essence, we can we can take all the clinical data that exists around somebody, right, and create what we've called an AI genome, and that what that allows us to do is have a really really high resolution and detailed picture of your health. Now, what's feeding? I mean, this is the thing because these systems are are data hungry. They are. So, what is feeding all of this data into this genome of me? Yeah, so it's so it's imaging data. You might have sat in an MRI machine for for twenty five minutes, forty minutes. It's pathology information, it's the patient records and the notes that a doctor makes about you, it's uh, other interactions you might have had with the healthcare system, and through our clinical partners, we collect all that information and build this, this genome for you. All right, so now that you have this genome, does that then mean that you can sort of, I guess, ask questions of that genome? Like, you know, will I, am I... As, as the nephew of a person who's just had a triple bypass, do I need to have the same worries? You know, is it that kind of stuff that you're going to be able to ask? Totally, yeah. And not only that, should I be worried, but what can I do now and what steps should I take to prevent myself from having needing a triple bypass in the future? So is there a line between what might constitute what we might think of as, as health and medicine and then on the other side what constitutes fitness and activity? Or is this just sort of a spectrum? I see it more as a spectrum. I think all of that stuff comes together. Um, I think traditionally they've been kept very far apart, mm. but I, I don't think that's a sensible thing going forward. I think as we see more personalization of medicine, the thing that's really feeding all of that is getting a more personalized picture of you. Well, we keep on hearing, I mean, personalized medicine has been a buzzword for 20 or 30 years, yep. and there really hasn't been a lot. I mean, we're seeing tiny little bits of genomic medicine, or maybe someone's making antibodies to cure someone's cancer, but they're very, they're, they're really outliers. So is this what you're doing, I guess, the beginning of a much larger wave around this? Yeah, the way, the way I think of it is that all that personalized medicine stuff and precision medicine is another word came out of that genetic revolution. Mm -hmm. Somebody figuring out how to sequence the genome and how it going from a million dollars to a thousand dollars. The that's all well and good, but to actually provide actionable environmental insights about you, we need to take a much wider picture of your health. So that's what an MRI machine allows us to do is anatomical and functional about how blood flows, plus the genetic stuff, your genetic profile, plus all of the other information we get. We can build a much more detailed picture of your health now. And on top of that, the computational requirements that we needed to do to be able to deliver this mm -hmm. has only just become economically feasible. So a supercomputer that would have been the top you know, kind of 10 supercomputers around the world, we can now walk into your computer store down the road and buy for a thousand bucks. So it's it's this combination of a whole bunch of things. All right, so uh, I, I, I want to back up a little bit. How did the two of you, and you're both young, how did the two of you sort of get into this? Where did the idea come from? Yeah. So my background is electrical and biomedical engineering. Right. So I did a, a PhD designing... MRI systems that coupled with radiation therapy and helped uh, automate treatment in real time to minimize healthy tissue damage. Ah, okay. Uh, and you know, I was involved in the the hardware side of that, so building parts of the MRI machine. But I saw the the bigger picture of that and thought, look, this is great in a in the context of treatment. But you know, everything leading up to treatment is so rudimentary in comparison and there's a and really if you've gotten to the point where you need treatment maybe there have been a whole series of other problems yeah. along the yeah, way yeah yeah most certainly and uh i think you know software is at a point now where it can become 
the catalyst to really solving this and making sure that less people end up in treatment in the first place. So all of that came together and, and really inspired, you know, what is now Maxwell MRI. And Matt? Uh, Elliot and I have known each other for, for more four years now. We actually went on the first Startup Catalyst program together. Right. And that's how we met. And then I've followed Elliot's journey through his past startup. I went strategy consulting instead of starting a startup. And then um, it came to about, well, what is now 18 months ago, and I was going, I've had enough of this corporate life, um, as, as enjoyable as it is in some circumstances. Um, it saw what Elliot's been working on. And, right. and, I, and I kind of contextualized that with my experiences with the healthcare system, seeing the pain and suffering and uncertainty that a lot of people go through. Right. And so I thought, this is the perfect opportunity to put our skills to work. So, so Elliot, this is really your journey from the coalface, from taking a look at this close up. Here's what I see and here's what I see people need. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's, I, I, I think that's also a very big vision. Now, it's good for tiny startups to have big vision. It's uncommon in medicine because medicine is thought of as such a protected domain of expertise. How do you sort of get around that? Yeah, I mean, look, in the traditional startup fashion, we are, we're going for an MVP. Right. So in our case, the MVP is looking at uh, men's health and prostate cancer mm -hmm. and seeing how we can apply this model to uh, assisting people with prostate cancer because we found that you know, it's a good personification or a good realization of all these problems that we've seen. You know, the current system is quite clunky and there's a lot of overdiagnosis and a lot of missed uh, conditions and a lot of people end up going through procedures that they don't need. Right. Uh, mm. So for us, it was a, a great thing to test our idea on and solidify it there and then expand out into that bigger grand division that we have. Now, where are you on that path as an MVP? Because clearly something that's going to be a medical product, there has to be a high degree of certainty associated mm -hmm. with it, and it has to be verifiable certainty. It can't just be you saying, oh, we know this works. You yeah. have to have clinical results that you can show other practitioners. Yeah, that's it. And that's why the next 18 months is, is, is basically a set of milestones and steps for us building up that evidence, communicating that evidence, right. and gaining the trust of the clinical community as well as the regulators and the patients themselves. So, so how do you, what's the entry point to being able to build that evidence? Yes, yeah, so it all starts with publication. In essence, right. we've got to take ours and, and, and public, take our technology and over a series of publications, peer-reviewed publications. So science, basic science. It, exactly that, exactly that, right. basic science to prove that it that's what it says. Now, is all of this then, from the startup point of view, is all of this capital intensive because there is a lot of time and study involved here? Yeah, I mean, we still we still try and stretch every dollar. You know, we're not we're not trying to build a next research hub or anything like that. We we want to build a startup here. We want to build a business, and we want to do it lean. Mm. Um, so you know, while we have the scientific rigor that we need, uh, we're always conscious about doing things in a way that you know, speaks to that startup ethos of, you know, doing things lean and doing things quickly and iterating on things. Do you find, uh, I mean, we're, we're sitting in the new River City Labs and uh, having recorded an episode two years ago in the old River City Labs, I can't even tell you how different it is and how beautiful and schmick it is. And Steve Baxter's running around smiling, which is always a bad sign. <laughs> <laughs> um, do, you, do you think that there is the necessary ecosystem elements, not just in Brisbane, but in Australia, to support a really ambitious medical startup like this? Yeah, I, 
I think it's there. I think the good thing is that the ecosystem is now mature enough that they expect startups to think globally. Mm-hmm. You know, like, uh, so I've been, I've been part of River City Labs for about four years now, so I've, I've seen that transition. And, and when we started, it was very much, is Brisbane better than Sydney, better than Melbourne? Right. But now, you know, like, we still ask those questions sometimes, but really it's like, is Australia turning out globally relevant startups? So the conversation has matured. And I think that is a good sign to us because, you know, realistically, to be a global business, we have to be globally present. Yeah. Uh, and I think Australia is getting on board with that and facilitating that. All right. So global medical sales, that's another whole beast. I mean, then you're not just talking about doing something, getting it peer reviewed, getting it approved maybe by the Therapeutic Goods Administration in, in, this, country, in yes. this country. And then you're talking about the FDA and whatever EU licensing authority. And yeah. uh, so Global scale for you is different than, say, just your normal SaaS startup. Yeah, we can't just start up a business in Germany and start <laughs> selling. No, you're right. You're right. So, the, but the good news is that it's a pretty well understood path. Sure. So it's it's um, it's go from here, go to the European regulator, get C mark, and then expand out into the relevant jurisdictions that have reciprocal agreements, and then look at the US and, and China mm-hmm. a little bit later down the track. But it's it's. Um, it's still a process. It's not as easy, but it's well-defined and, and we'll step through it. All right, so starting from where you are now, which is an MVP around prostate cancer diagnosis and treatment, into the thing that we opened with, which is this amazing, very full-on vision of a medical genome, of basically a medical AI that would be deeply personalized to my own health and my own fitness and would be something that presumably I would be deeply interacting with mm-hmm. all of the time. Mm-hmm. What's the what's the time span of that journey for you? I mean, it's good to see that you have a path, but how long does it take to really get to something that's significantly down that path? Yeah, I mean, our, our goal at the moment uh, is to have a multi-diagnosis platform out in 18 months. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's not going to be head to toe, but it's going to be more than prostate, and it's going to start to build that idea in the market that multiple diagnosis using software is possible and that this AI genome is something we're starting to see glimmers of and you know, hopefully build from there and, and become the future of how we do medicine. The medical community is it's interesting because it's very divided. In some ways, treatments are very advanced, mm. but you go into most hospitals and doctors are still keeping notes on paper mm. and nurses yeah. and everyone yeah, else, yeah. right? And uh, medical com- uh, providers wend in going, here's your top-to-bottom solution that they've done without actually considering the workflow that already exists in the hospital. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they always get sort of bounced out again so that we're still keeping notes on paper in 2017 yeah. when that's not necessarily good for anyone, particularly the patient. So how then do you provide a solution that actually can tolerate the medicine as it is practiced in the real world? I, I read a really interesting paper today around why there hasn't been adoption of electronic medical records inside the clinical community. And I, as something I've believed for a little while, but this this kind of reinforced me, is it's all about the value that that gives back to the clinician. Right, of course. The clinician does not want to sit there and enter their stuff into a computer because that computer is not going to give them anything back that allows them to deliver right. better patient outcomes. Right. Maxwell, if they enter something into Maxwell, we deliver something back to them that gives them better patient outcomes, measurable better patient outcomes, and both on a clinical side and an economic side. So it is it is a completely different experience for a doctor using the product because they actually get something back. Now, does this actually, I guess, 
in a way, does this change the role of the doctor where it's not so much about the doctor knowing everything, but it's around a relationship between the patient, the doctor, and the medical AI that are evolving into something? I mean, is that because this, this is another point where I'm wondering whether med medical practitioners will take it up because that relationship is kind of core. Yeah, I, I think we see a little bit of skepticism around that in the clinical community about, you know, this AI is going to come in and, and take all of our work away. Right. And I suppose to me, that's a very pessimistic way to look at it. And that that's a way of looking at it that assumes that the amount of work that can get done has a fundamental limit and we're at it today. But I disagree with that. I think what AI is going to do is it's going to maybe suck up 80% of the work we do today. And these clinicians who have gone through years of training are now going to stand on top of that foundation that we set and move that bar just as high again. Mm. And we'll continue that process and keep clinicians at the cutting edge of healthcare and pushing the boundaries forward. And if you go back 40 or 50 years, you'd see exactly the same totally thing, right? right? Because, because people were doing things with what was effectively stone knives 40 and 50 years ago to the level of their ability, and now they sit on a much better level of tools and technique. That's yeah. it. That's it. It's releasing their minds from, from their current workload and making them explore. <laughs> Elliot, Matt. Thank you very much for being on This Week in Startups Australia's AI special. Great. Thanks for having Thanks me. Thanks a lot. Hi, it's Mark again. We had this long break between April and August. You might be wondering why. Well, earlier this year, I was approached to do another podcast. This one is about the future. The next billion seconds are going to be the most important in history. And on that podcast, we talk to the folks who are deeply involved in making the future. Their insights can help us make decisions today that will leave us better off tomorrow. So I invite you all to visit Podcast One Australia at podcastone.com.au and have a listen. Or download the Podcast One app through the App Store or Google Play and listen on the go. I'm very happy with the work we're doing on the next billion seconds. I know you'll enjoy our tour through the future. It's easy to imagine a time within the next five or ten years with a smartphone has become so connected to machine learning and medicine that it's not just indispensable for keeping our lives organized, but it's indispensable for our wellness. And that will be a fundamental transition because for the first time, we will have a partnership that will help us stay as well as we can for as long as we can with systems that are constantly learning from us. That's the promise of Maxwell MRI's medical genome. When I walked in to interview Matt and Elliot, I didn't really understand. I thought they were just doing something that was improving cancer diagnosis. But when they revealed the big picture, I got to see the arc of where we are all going on this startup journey. That startup journey that Queensland is going on, that startup journey that Anne-Marie and One Ventures are going on, that startup journey that is going to take all of us along because that startup journey is now starting to create the products that will actually transform the way we live our lives. And I trust that Queensland is now far enough along that journey that no matter what government is in, no matter what minister is in, the folks in that community will keep their eyes on the prize and keep working on the things that don't just make money, but actually make life better. Big thanks to Twista sponsors Creative3 and Spaceship. Their support makes this podcast possible. 
Thanks to Felix Gormuth and AnalogCabin.net for his hard work creating a podcast that's a joy to listen to. Thanks to Anne-Marie Burkle, Matt Brown, and Elliot Smith for taking the time to come on our show. We'll be taking another short break, but we'll be back soon with more episodes. Until then, this is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening to This Week in Startups Australia. <laughs>